with your presence in this place that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Open us to your word even more than your word is open to us. Speak to us, we pray. Redeem my words, my creatureliness, my sin, even as I claim to speak what you have put on my heart. And bless us together, your people, for your name's sake in this world we ask, in the power of Jesus Christ, amen. The last public execution in England, they used to do this a lot, uh, was of two women. It was a mom and her daughter who had caused a thunderstorm by taking off their stockings. In the scheme of history, it's not that long ago. And it was largely the church that presided over such matters. I mean, the church and state were a little more locked together at that time, not as separate as now where we live. But the church would have given the rationale morally, theologically, and maybe even scripturally, though I would wonder where that would be found, for such activities just in case you think things don't change. Uh, I'm glad, and I think you would be too, that that's not how we see our faith anymore, for the most part. But there are remnants still. Uh, We're not going to any public executions today, thanks be to God. But uh, some of that stuff can still get caught in our thinking. How could a faith that is supposedly centered entirely and entirely defined by Jesus Christ do things like that. If you take your eyes off of Jesus and his all-encompassing, powerful, eternal, and unconditional love, then religion can become psychotic. I don't have to tell you that. Even as psychotic as murdering, and that's what it was, two women in the name of purity because they took off their stockings. What I want to do today is to ask what it means what it means that our gaze would be fixed on Jesus for Christian mission. That's what we've been thinking and speaking about. How we understand Jesus and other people will direct how we live this faith. If we think that Jesus is mostly upset at people, after all, we're all sinners, including those two women, but if we think that Jesus is mostly upset at people and disappointed, then we'll act in certain ways. If we think there's a delineation in terms of sin between people inside the church and people outside of the church, then we'll draw lines and try to pull people over that line. It impacts our mission. So today we're going to look at two pictures briefly, and then you'll have a chance to stay afterwards and talk with a few people if you like. We're, not going, to, we're going to try to not have the big discussion groups this time, like ten people. We're simply going to say, find three or four people who are near you and you know, get in a little group and talk. Okay? So no leaders, just conversation. So two pictures asking, who is Jesus, and what will our witness to him look like? Have you ever had a non-Christian friend say to you, that for those of us who live this faith for a long time, and, and you know, we're, we're identified as Christians, sometimes you get that people, you know, might not know you're a Christian, and that has a whole other set of considerations. But have you ever had a non-Christian friend come up to you and say, do you think that I'm going to hell? It can happen. 
usually, I mean, you have to first of all have non-Christian friends for that to be a possibility. And you have to have non-Christian friends who are willing to be really honest with you and the kind of people that would like not, you know, not be afraid to upset you. Um, and you might have someone say, do you think that I'm going to hell? Because I haven't prayed the prayer to accept Jesus into my heart. And I don't think I'm going to. So you must think I'm going to hell, right? And what would you say? It is something for us to consider that there is a world of people. These are people that God loves as much as he loves you or me. Who look at some understanding. I'm not saying it's the pure truth understanding. But they would look and say, okay, so you think that most of the people who've ever lived in history. So most people who've ever lived in history have died. You understand that? So we live in a time where they're very thin slivers. So they would say, somebody, if they were willing to really cajole you, would say, you believe, don't you, that most people who've ever lived are currently burning in hell? And you think I'm going to as well? But because you're not, you want me to think that's good news. What would you say? The reason I'm doing this and shaking you a little bit is that it's no secret that I have felt that at times our faith centers more on right and wrong and judgment and acceptability than on Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to be more Jesus-y, not less. And I think fear, I don't just think this, the Bible tells us this, fear moves us away from Jesus Christ. And there's nothing more fearful than the kinds of pictures I just drew for you. I don't know what eternal judgment, judgment in the after looks like. None of you does. If you told me you knew exactly what heaven and hell are like, particularly hell, there's about 600 and some verses directly speaking about heaven in scripture, and there's 14 directly speaking about hell. So that's not counting the places where Jesus says like weeping and gnashing of teeth and such, but like direct references. So if there's anyone who says, I know exactly the nature of this, then talk to me later and you don't know. I don't know. But we're going to have to move away from fear to get closer to Jesus. I believe in judgment. I believe in judgment over all of time and history and every one of our acts. I believe you're a sinner and so am I. And I believe that that will all be burned away. And we'll know the power and love of the God who loves us all. And we will know that picture in Revelation where every creature above the earth, on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, everything in it, will praise the name of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be leery of this not knowing. C.S. Lewis is an evangelical hero, right? You heard him quoted in like every evangelical church. C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory. He said, I don't know the nature of really what's after, but here's what I'm going to kind of... So reason one why I want to kind of be okay with that uncertainty is that scripture itself is not clear on this. We're not supposed to be clear on this. We're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be clear on Jesus. 
And reason two from that is that Jesus is this interest of our faith. Our mission and our vision and our love and the way we treat other people ought to be compelled, and it often is, by our love for Jesus Christ and our awareness of what he has done for us, not by any kind of delineation of who is in and who is out. Aren't you glad that no one will be killed today, at least not in our part of the world, for causing a thunderstorm by their fashion choices? So Revelation 5, one of my favorite chapters. This chapter, I weep every time I read it. It is one of the most beautiful chapters in all of history. It's cosmic. Some of you don't like that word cosmic. I know it feels kind of weird. Some of you love the word cosmic. But cosmic is like the clouds were peeled back, but everything is always metaphor. So if you look for heaven beyond the clouds, you're doing that thing again where you're trying to you know, be certain about what it means. So it's all trying to get us to understand. It's like you peeled back the sky. But you removed not only that natural sky and clouds, but you peeled back history and you were given a vision and a revelation of Jesus Christ over all time. Be careful about abusing revelation because revelation is often treated as if it's the revelation of end times. It's not that. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of how history ends and finds its completion in him. No interest in figuring out what does this beast mean? What is this horn? What is this? If you do that, you will move further and further away from Jesus Christ. But this scene, all of history is gathered before the throne of God in heaven. All of history, however you describe all of history gathered before the throne, it's always going to be kind of in bits and pieces. You can only draw like, so this is what it would look like. And John, this disciple of Jesus Christ, now imprisoned on this island, has these visions. That's what Revelation is. John's given visions. And he has this vision of this scene. And what the scene is, it's early in the book, right? Revelation 5. So what's going to happen from 5 on is that the meaning of history is going to be revealed. But all of history has gathered before the throne of God. Now, if you want to make that like an actual chair and stuff, fine. It doesn't really matter to me. All I know is that it's a vision, a picture of what this might look like, that all of history is gathered before the God who has created all everything. And a scroll appears. And on that scroll is the unveiling of all meaning that ever was. Your suffering. Why? Everything is told in that scroll. And no one, it's like, a, it's like a Lord of the Rings type scene, isn't it? There's no one who can unroll it. No one is worthy. So, I could end and make the sermon really short. So history ends there and we don't know why anything. It's not what happened. John sees that nobody can open the scroll And it's so beautiful, right? So heartfelt. He says, I wept and wept. And then an elder says, Stop weeping. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the name of Jesus. But it encompasses the whole of Scripture back into the Old Testament, right? 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who conquers. He's there. And he can open the scroll. What would you feel in that moment? You'd just be suspended. And when John looks, and this is one of my favorite little turns in all of our scripture. I, I, I know I've preached on this before. I preach on it every week. I, it never exhausts. When John looks to find the lion, he says, I looked. And in between the throne and the elders and all this scene, it's all there. I looked at the lion and I saw instead a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And then all of history began to praise, worthy is the Lamb who can open the scroll. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. And even when he is described as the conquering lion, he appears as the slain Lamb. He is the entirety of our faith. And he opened the scroll and there was a song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We sing it, right? To receive honor and glory and riches and strength, power and blessing. And every creature, stop trying to tell me who's not there. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in it I mean, you get the idea, right? The vision is so strong that John is, is writing down, there's nobody who doesn't fit in the every. And every creature is singing, worthy is the Lamb. That is the end of history. And this is the picture that ought to guide your mission and witness more than fearful pictures. Much more important than asking who is saved is to ask who does the saving. And it is the lion and the lamb. So we go from heaven with clouds peeled back to one of the most earthy, earthy scenes ever. It's in John chapter 8. It's the famous story of the woman caught in adultery. I was, I was going over the sermon this morning and I, this was hurting me a bit because what was dawning on me was how, how little we've learned since this time. This poor woman is dragged before Jesus. I mean, it's just sick. It's a misogynistic, terrible scene. Men have caught her in the act of having sex with someone. It's probably a setup. It might have been someone they knew. But they didn't drag him before Jesus. They took this woman and dragged her before Jesus. Humiliated. Trying to cover herself up. And then, when I was, like, it's not just how I was taught, okay? It's my own reading, right? You're imprisoned in these fearful readings of Scripture. But in that kind of reading, I picked up that the sin in the story was the woman's sin. Can you imagine anything worse than thinking that? 
Where's the sin in this story? What about these men who dragged her before Jesus? And you want to talk to me about her sin? They hated her. They less than hated her. And they didn't give a rip about what happened to her. They only dragged her before Jesus to condemn him. Why? Because they knew that his love for all people was offensive to their ideas of who needed to be condemned. And she was their pawn. And you don't have to look very far to see that this can still be the way in many places today. These religious men drag a woman who'd been caught in the act of having sex with a man, not dragging him. And then I'm supposed to read the story and think about her sin. So they say, well, she was caught in the act, Jesus, and Moses' law is clear. They quote scripture. (laughs) Scripture, when it's being quoted to do things against Jesus... This is not really scripture. You understand that? They quote scripture to hate someone. It's clear, Jesus, she's to be condemned and stoned to death. And then the setup. What do you say? Actually, you know the language they use? They say, the law is clear about what should happen, and you know this is how these people talk. The law is clear about what should happen to, and here's the words, such women. I have a word in my head I can't say right now. They despise her. And Jesus bends down. I mean, the scene is so fraught with tension. He bends down and he writes with his finger on the ground. And they press him and they holler. And I see her crumpled, trying to cover herself up, putting her hair over her face. And they're screeching. She may even be condemning herself. Likely she is. She would have picked up the same way of the world that she would think to herself, well, I am a sinful person. Maybe I'm just going to get what's coming to me. Okay, Jesus says, standing up, looking at these guys. Let's start. Let's stone her. First one that gets to throw a rock is the one who is without sin. He has so much authority. What is it about Jesus that makes them not throw the rock? And he bends down again and starts writing back in the dirt again. And they start to disappear one by one, Scripture says. I mean, the jokes are like he was writing down their sins or something. I don't... It's not necessary. The older ones first and then the younger ones until it's only her and him left. Let yourself be suspended there in that picture. Imagine from above what that would look like. This woman in the dirt, in the dust, crumpled down, and Jesus there, kneeling beside her. It's just the two of them left. The answer to the question, like, 
who is without sin, let them cast the first stone. Of course, the answer to the question, who is without sin, is there is one person there without sin. And he throws no stones. And don't you turn him into someone who does. And the misreading of this story turns him into someone who does. But we'll get there. What does he do? He asks her, he leans down to her, and he asks her, I imagine maybe he touches her shoulder, but she might be so afraid. That... And he says through her hair covering her face affectionately, he says, woman, where are your accusers? Has anyone condemned you? And she says quietly, I would guess, no one. But she knows there's one who could. Maybe should. And then our Lord says, neither do I condemn you. And then, this is where people make the story mean the opposite of what it must mean. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And when I was a young Christian growing up, the emphasis on the entire story was on that last line, go and sin no more. As if the whole rest of the story was not the most powerful part. He didn't condemn her. He didn't condemn her. He didn't condemn her. He would not condemn her. But he warned her that he, that he would soon. Do you honestly think that's what our Lord is like? Of course not. But person after person would say to me, Todd, he, he did say, that's how it's always said, he did say, which means maybe we don't like it, but he did say, go and sin no more. What do you think he meant? Do you think he meant, I didn't condemn you this time, but I will next time? There were these men in her life. We don't know how many men she was sleeping with. It's always told as if there were multiple, but it might just have been this setup. But there was a man or men who were maybe using her for her body. And maybe she allowed that to happen. We don't know the story. But there was a group, a man or a group of men who dehumanized her in that way. Didn't love her. And then there were religious men who literally dragged her. I feel their sin is the worst in the story. They dragged her before Jesus, just using her. They hated her. They despised her. Why did they hate her? They hated her because she offended their sense of right and wrong. I think they also hated her because they were attracted to her. And so they experienced disgust. So all these men in her life, and now there's one man left. And she may have encountered for the first time in her life a man who loved her. Please don't turn him into someone who said, right now, yes, but I will condemn you later. What he's saying to her is, you don't need to live like you're living now. You are better than this. Go. Leave this life. That's how some translates. Leave this life that you're living. So, as we turn to our time of discussion, 
we can compress these two scenes in a way that this woman may not have been able to do, unless we don't know her interior prayer life at this point. I think she would just be astounded that there was maybe one man in the world she could trust. I don't know if the heavens were peeled back for her and she knew that he was the eternal Lord of all glory. But you know who she was talking to then? The conquering lion. The lamb that was slain. It's him. He's there kneeling in the dirt with this woman. And he is the heart of your mission in this world. That people would know him that you wouldn't look to your loved ones and your kids and others, your friends, and think about you know right and wrong and who's in and who's out, but that you would think, Lord Jesus Christ, may your presence, love, eternal love and power be revealed to these people that I love as you revealed it to this woman. We will speak this gospel and the reminder that there are no God-forsaken people. Even those religious men. I struggle with them, clearly. I mean, the joke that I make is they hated her, but religious men like that hate everything. But I know my Lord loved them. (laughs) A call for ourselves and others is to live in light of this astounding love. I know it's hard for some of you because so many of us have had drilled into this this idea that uh, accepting Jesus is about getting to heaven, you know, rather than damnation or something. I want our faith to be more Jesus-y, not less. Live in light of this love. Mercy, mercy is much more demanding than fear and judgment that you could be this merciful to everybody as Jesus was merciful to this woman. And can you maybe oblige? I mean, if you disagree with me, that's fine. We could read scripture differently. But I, I do struggle if you interpret this as he was warning her that he would condemn her later. It's just the story just doesn't add up that way. So that maybe we wouldn't say, he did say, go and sin no more. Maybe we, we'd be more astonished by his not condemning her. I want people that I know to, to know a love like that. That for God's sake, for our sake, we could drop our religious certainty and grow in this deep trust in Jesus Christ over all history. The conquering lion, the slain lamb, and the one who kneeled down in the dirt with that woman that day. There's nobody like him. We'll give him our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, guide us then. Renew our faith, but our faith in our Lord, not our faith in any outcome, our faith in our Lord. If we trust you, Lord Jesus, we trust you with all the judgment, and we thank you that you love like this. Bless us now. Bless this offering as it is taken. For your sake, for our sake, that others would know in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ushers can come forward and take the offering.